people will say, where do, where do you get these ideas from? And of course, I have no answer for it because it all comes from the subconscious. The best work comes from the subconscious. And when I start off to write a picture and I want it to be really good, then I don't work out an outline or a storyline or uh, I don't know where I'm going. I just know how it's going to begin. And then I got into the story and it unravels for me and I'm telling it as it's happening. Like I'm seeing the movie for the first time. Then when I stop work, I can't wait to get back to it the next day because I want to find out what's going to happen next. I want to know how it's going to turn out. Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of Calling the Night Boys, a new podcast with Nick Burbage and Gavin Bradshaw where friends introduce each other to things that they like in the possibly vain hope that the other person will like them too. Uh, Nick, last time we were discussing the band Talk Talk, uh, in this episode you're going to introduce me to something that, that you like. But before you do that, um, I'd just like to talk about our new and improved sound for the podcast. Anybody who heard the last podcast, uh, which yeah. is basically our, our friends, May have noticed that there were some interesting sound effects that we introduced into the mix, uh, particularly the sound of glasses being filled. Although I think people found that quite charming. Yeah, I'd like to think so, yeah. rather than irritating, like when our voices kept fading in and out. Yeah. There was a bit that I cut out, which was you could hear me having a wee for about five minutes really <laughs> loudly. It, it's kind of relevant because... Um, the, the sound in the film that we're going to talk about shortly yeah. um, is, is interesting in its uh, complexity and some would say um, lack of sophistication. Yes. <laughs> but uh, it did sound in our last podcast like we were experimenting at being Foley artists. Yeah. For example, the sound of liquids being poured. Mm. Like that. That's nice. And of people drinking. Mm. Sometimes it picked up our thoughts. Must, much like the uh, Scientologist e-meter, but we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later. Anyway, Nick, that's enough from me. Um, over to you. What are we going to talk about today? Let me start by saying... This woman attacked her own son. This man jumped to his death. This officer opened fire on the St. Patrick's Day Parade. That was a scary trailer for the 1976 film God Told Me To, directed and written by Larry Cohen, the famous B-movie director, writer, producer, publicist, set designer, everything else uh, who died recently. Larry's movies are not necessarily subtle, they're thoughtful, they're reflections of the world around him and the problems in that world. Those are not my words, those are the words of Martin Scorsese. Also a man who doesn't necessarily make subtle films. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Larry Cohen, a true original, says Joe Dante. Larry Cohen was an independent, freewheeling movie legend. For so many fun, high-concept genre romps with ideas bigger than the budgets, for so many truly inspiring cult movies, I thank you, Larry. That's Edgar Wright. 
director of Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver. The white Martin Luther King Jr. for movies. That's Yafet Koto, the movie star, mostly from the 70s and 80s, who was starred in Alien and also Cohen's first feature film, Bone, in 1972. He's writer and director of such films as It's Alive, It's Alive 2, It Lives Again, The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, and It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. <laughs> uh, he died this year, aged either 82 or 77, depending on which obit you read. 82 in Variety, 77 in The Guardian. No one seems to agree on his real age. Uh, he began his career in the 1960s in television. He also created the uh, TV shows The Invaders and Branded. He created The Invaders? I he think. did create The Invaders. That. that was one of yeah. my favourite programmes. Yeah, my, about my brother loved it. Yeah. Let's face it, in all honesty, the show is really an outgrowth of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where people uh, are taken over by aliens and... But there have been so many stories in all science fiction about aliens uh, taking over the bodies of human beings and posing as human beings and infiltrating our society as human beings. At the time I wrote the show, it really had a little something to do with the politics of the country, where everybody was hunting for communists, and everybody might have been a communist. Uh, what does a communist look like? How do, we how do we tell if somebody's a communist? And here was this takeoff on this witch hunt where... Uh, this guy's running around looking for aliens, trying to expose aliens in our society. So it had the tagline, they live in your neighbourhood. That's the tagline for the Brexit party, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. In the 70s, he began to focus on filmmaking, and his first film was Bone, which was a kind of class and race relations satire set mostly in his home in L.A. Uh, that starred Yafet Koto, um, which led Yafet to talk about him being the white Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, shut up. We don't need all this bullshit. Um, then he, he had a big of a, bit of a hit with the 1974 horror, horror film It's Alive, the first It's Alive film, and he managed to rope in Bernard Herrmann to do the music for that. You're going to have to tell me who Bernard... Bernard, Bernard Herrmann was a very famous film composer who composed most of Hitchcock's films, oh, okay. including Psycho, North right. by Northwest, Vertigo. You'd recognise his style anyway. He, has, he, he often uses a, a clarinet in a very low register to suggest menace. Oh, much like the way uh, on Radio 4 they always use a cello in a low register mm. to uh, <laughs> refer to, I don't know, sad bits. Yeah, It's Alive is about... Uh, a mutant baby that kills people but it only kills people because people treat it as a mutant people right. treat it as a freak and it's just like fighting back as a tiny baby and he said that he said that all his films were about outsiders and turning things on their heads so it's alive uh, you know a sweet baby turns into this monster but actually who's the real monster is it the baby or is it society? Right. Although, to be honest, society doesn't tear people's heads off. <laughs> no. uh, after It's Alive, he made the film that we're going to talk about tonight called Told Me To, which is often considered to be his most interesting film. And then he went on, in the 80s, he produced Cue the Winged Serpent, which is 
a kind of crime film, but then there also happens to be um, a Mexican um, bird lizard god nesting at the top of the Chrysler building. Not your typical uh, crime drama no. concept. You couldn't <laughs> imagine that happening in Juliet Bravo. No. <laughs> its name is Quetzalcoatl. Just call it Q. That's all you'll have time to say before it tears you apart. After about an hour, he decides to deli- ditch the police movie and go straight for the monster movie for the yeah. last half hour. And um, anyway, I, I was talking... I wanted to mention his guerrilla filmmaking. And that one is particularly notorious because he had people firing blanks, shooting at this monster. And so there was a panic near the Chrysler building in 1982 where they thought there was a terrorist attack and all he said to his assistant director was go downstairs and film the panic which they did and so it comes off quite well but he got into a bit of trouble for that but obviously these days he'd probably get put in Guantanamo or he'd be twitted to death yeah he'd be twitted to death Um, he also made um, some so-called black exploitation films, uh, Black Caesar, which was based on Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson from the 30s. Fred Williamson, in the private war of an angry man, whose hate was spelled out in the blood of his enemies, his violence, in the curses of his women. And again, he used guerrilla filmmaking. He didn't get permission to film on the streets. He also had a taxi drive on the pavement in New York. Uh, without telling anybody. What, driving towards people? Driving yeah. towards people, you know, in a chase scene. He just said, uh, well, you know, they're New Yorkers, they'll get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Famously, he said uh, about... He, he was interviewed about Q, the Winged Serpent, in 1982, and I think Cronenberg's Scanners had come out quite recently as well, which was a much bigger budget film, if still kind of a cult film. And someone asked him if he had the budget of Scanners, what kind of film would he make? And he said, I'd make three films. Which again, I love him for. He also directed The Stuff in 1985, which I think you've seen. I have, yeah. Yeah, we'll go into that a bit. It took me a long time to get around to watching it, but yeah, I'm glad okay. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Stuff is a, is a consumer satire about um, a yoghurt-type substance, substance that comes out of a building site and is... Very yummy, but it also, when you eat it, it eats you from the inside. When I was a little girl, I didn't think there was anything that I liked better than ice cream. Now I'm a big girl, and I've decided there's something I like better, much better. It's called the stuff, and believe me, enough is never enough. And he also directed Betty Davis in her last film in 1989 called Wicked Stepmother, which I haven't seen. I didn't know that. Oh, don't apologise. You didn't wake me up. I was reading a sexy novel. One of the reasons I like Cohen is that he's completely unlike me. He gets on with it. He has said about writing, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you're stuck, just write the scenes you feel like writing, and then other scenes will come together like connective tissue. I think that actually shows in some of the films. It certainly it? does show. I think it shows in all his films, whether it's the stuff, whether it's God Told Me To, whether it's his black exploitation films. 
um, whether it's Q the Winged Serpent. Um, yeah, so this means that his films often take a very strange left turns, not always to the good of the story. So that's the thing. So they're often a kind of mashup between police procedural. I think that's because he was that's what he was doing in his TV days. Mm. But he wants to tackle bigger subjects, like is there uh, a winged serpent living in the Chrysler <laughs> building? <laughs> um, it's a common preoccupation yeah. of these times, I think. And um, so they're always messy. And I think with the satire, sometimes it works brilliantly and sometimes it doesn't because I think he's trying to hit a hundred different targets at the same time. And I think this is probably true of the film tonight, God Told Me To. So before uh, before we get into the film, um, your original question when you came out of viewing it at the BFI, is it good or is it not? Where where are you at with that now? Uh, It's a bit of a guilty pleasure, to use a well-worn phrase, but also I think it does have great things about it, um, like all his films do. Um, But whether it's actually a good film or a great film is debatable. I think there's a few things about it that struck me. One was that it sort of prefigures a few debates that are going on at the moment. Although not consciously, I, I don't think he's no. necessarily trying to make any points, but it's just there's some interesting things about some of the characters that like, would sort of play quite well nowadays. He shadows a lot of kind of tropes of classic cinema, whether that's consciously or otherwise, I don't know. Yeah, um, you see, I didn't the, really notice that, but get, carry on. Well, I, I guess we'll come to it later on, but uh, I mean, obviously we're talking about a film that starts out as a, as a police procedural, which is a very much a, a kind of... Um, classic film noir um, narrative structure Um, and there's a lot of noirish elements in the movie Um, not just narratively speaking but also visually Okay. Um, partly to do with shots partly to do with with the um, dialogue Um, but also there's kind of elements of other filmmakers uh, like I, I kind of saw elements of Citizen Kane in there as well but we'll come to that later Citizen uh, Kane yeah that's apparently the world's greatest movie yeah so I've heard okay here's a review from The Time by Roger Ebert uh, December 1st 1976 it's a one star review I wasn't going to see God Told Me To God indeed seemed to be telling me not to which is quite a clever But then I read a press release and knew immediately that this was a movie I had to see. It had been too long, I decided, since I'd seen a film in which the leading character was, and I quote, the only man alive who can make the choice to help or destroy a mysterious force which has begun to unleash its dread power upon the earth. Not since Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster had a press release promised so much. Is that an actual film? I think it is, yeah. <laughs> I'd quite like to see yeah, it. Yes, so would I. The movie, alas, does not quite live up to the billing. It never quite identifies the dread power, which I think is one of the strengths of the film. Mm. Although from brief glimpses I got of it, it seemed to be a hippie who glowed yellow. <laughs> he's, he's not wrong there. He's no. not wrong there. It is a hippie that, that glowed yellow. But the movie does achieve greatness in another way. It is the most confused feature-length film I've ever seen. He's not wrong there, either. He's not wrong there, but I would say 
uh, it's a failing and a strength of the film. Whereas he just sees it as complete failure. There were times when I thought the projectionist was showing the reels in random order. There's a quiet joke on the hapless audience. But no, apparently the movie was, let's see Captain Lessons, supposed to be put together this way, a sort of 52 card pickup of cinema. The story is so random indeed that by the time Sandy Dennis made her second appearance, I've forgotten she was in the film. The plot concerns a New York detective who investigates a series of murders in which the killers claimed God told them to kill. It turns out they're under the hypnotic sway of the child of visitors from outer space. The detective's assignment, if he chooses to accept it, help or destroy this mysterious force which has begun to unleash its dread power, etc. God told me too was a, uh, you know, a lot of people think that's a great movie, and I think so too. And uh... so the first thing that struck me about this um, is the uh, opening title sequence, and I'm not entirely sure what's going on because it's it's this kind of abstract image. Um, could be smoke, could be some kind of swirling liquid. I thought yeah. I thought the second time I'd seen it, maybe it was kind of like galaxies swirling through space as you pass through the universe, yeah. at, um, well in advance of light speed. But but it, it struck me as a very sort of uh, noirish title sequence, sort of reminiscent of one of those late forties or early fifties film noirs like DOA or Kiss Me Deadly. Okay, which probably don't start like that at all. But I um, haven't seen them in a very long time, so I, I can't say yes or no to that. But it struck me that he was definitely kind of harking back to some um, sort of golden age of Hollywood. I think I know what that stuff is at the beginning. Oh, what is it? I think it's Demon Seed. Okay. I'm not sure, but I think it might be... Yeah. You know what I mean by Demon <coughs> Seed? Um, well, I think so, because uh, an alternative title for this film was Demon, was it? That's, was it that's true. Why don't we talk about the, um, the opening of the movie? What, what happens in the sort of first five minutes? Of well, the, the first film? five minutes, again, guerrilla filmmaking, um, he had people suddenly fall over. There's also some quite uh, extravagant dying in this sequence. Yes. The sequence of people basically being uh, shot by an assassin who's perched atop yeah, the, exactly. a water tower uh, with a sniper's rifle. Exactly. Um, and there's people kind of like throwing themselves into walls uh, yeah. or spinning around and then and falling down. Again, because he probably hasn't got permits, passers-by are either quite shocked or merely baffled. Um, it was before shooting randomly became such a great trend in the United <laughs> States that we all know and love today. Yeah, this that sequence actually really reminded me of the um, Dirty Harry film with the... Scorpio. Scorpio, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, a similar kind of... Was almost reportage style yeah. um, filmmaking, but with some really over the top acting. And uh, I'll see the person in the background, background saying, "Oh my god!" Oh yeah. So you get in every American movie yeah. that features well, a, a scene of tragedy or chaos. Peter Nicholas, the investigating detective, discovers that each suspect says that no less than God told them to commit these crimes. Now, this information disturbs Detective Nicholas because he is a very devout Catholic. Despite living in sin with his girlfriend, Casey, and stringing her along by promising her he will ask his estranged wife for a divorce, when in fact he has no intention of doing so. He's also quite slightly perturbed by the fact that he didn't appear to have a sheet on the mattress in his bed. But... 
that's maybe that's just me. Yeah. I didn't notice that. I like the way. <laughs> what's interesting is that you were looking at the sheets as if you were like running the hotel that they were staying, but they're actually staying in their apartment. That's with his girlfriend. Yeah, that's right. You wanted the sort of mattress to develop some interesting stains <laughs> from not being covered with a sheet. They're seasoning the mattress. Well, it's. I guess that's what happens to those mattresses you see put out on the street outside a yeah. kind of apartment block. Yeah. Um, they're the exactly. ones that have been used by Peter Nicholas without so, a sheet. Well, to be honest, knowing Larry Cohen's methods, he probably did pull a mattress off the street <laughs> <laughs> put it in there. After that, he goes to see his wife. And this is actually a rather brilliantly directed scene with really good acting in. Sandy Dennis in particular is very good. I'm not out to hurt you, Peter. I feel sorry for you. You really believe. But where is all the joy it's supposed to put in your heart? That pretty much sums up how I feel about the Catholic faith. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's true. The trail of murders leads to a mysterious young man called Bernard Phillips who walks barefoot and who has been seen briefly with all the murder suspects. There's a shot that's very reminiscent, I thought, of the, of the third man. Okay. Um, he's quite fond of uh, aerial shots for a he start. He is, yeah. yeah. Um, lo- looking down on people yeah. and street scenes uh, from above. Um, and, and in addition to the, the sort of um, gorilla style you mentioned mm. where, where he's kind of the camera is milling amongst people on the pavement or between yeah. cars on the street but this is a very very stylized shot where um, the the detective um, he approaches a building and stops and he's he's kind of silhouetted against uh, a ferris wheel mm. before he then moves on again mm. um, and there's no real kind of narrative um, reason uh, for it yeah, yeah, reason for that to happen. Um, so it seems to it seems to me like this was a sort of a reference to filmmakers that he likes. Maybe I, I think know. I think that's true. I think he does put in references to you know he hires uh, actors from the past that he likes. Um, later on in the film, Sylvia Sidney, who was a stylist of the thirties and forties, appears in the film, and uh, and kind of uh, steals the show. In, in yeah, she respect. does. She's a great actress. My memory's all I have left. None of the other parts work very good anymore. But I suppose what I suppose where, where I'm going with this is, um, it seems like it's almost saying, "Look, I can do this stuff. I could, I could make yeah. a, a kind of um, a classic Hollywood yeah. movie, or I could make an art house yeah. movie. But this is the movie I want to make." There's a little movie like me. I'm the boss. Uh, if I say do it, they do it. That's all, and nobody knows about it. People who put up the money couldn't care less because they're not paying a dime more whether the picture takes 31 days or 29 days. I'm, I'm getting a set price for the picture. I can do whatever I please. But that's the only way you can have freedom. I always said the two places you get freedom are at the very bottom and at the very top if you're Steven Spielberg or Robert Zemeckis. And in between, you're in terrible trouble because there's people second-guessing you and, uh, and looking at your dailies and, uh, you know pulling the rug out from under you, so to speak. He's also, uh, I mean, I mentioned that he, he peers the reference of the movies. Mm. He also mixes up those references in quite a chaotic fashion, yeah, which is quite amusing. Quite so the scene we've just mentioned is immediately followed with one uh, where the detective tries, is walking up the stairs of his apartment block to try and meet uh, the mother of Bernard yeah. Phillips. He doesn't have time to reach her apartment because she launches herself at him 
with a knife. That's right. Um, and it's almost like a reversal of the scene in Psycho. Yeah. There are elements of his sort of satirical yeah, humour that, yeah. um, that pop out now and again. He goes to see a um, the science editor of um, whatever the newspaper is. It's, um, so, it, it's not the New York Times. It's more like the New York Post. Sure, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit more tabloidy. Yeah. Um, After some interesting and dramatic moments and lovely camera work, you're suddenly thrown into B-movie land. Uh, Peter Nicholas says to this guy, You had the guts to print that stuff about God being an ancient astronaut. But, but then he follows it up with um, one of those kind of acute pieces of yeah. social commentary, which uh, I think he does very well, uh, which is uh, the science editor says he'd quite like to, he'd quite like to see God show up, as he put it, mm. as it would finish the churches. You know what, I think that guy's right. I just want to rewind a bit because it seems that what uh, Peter Nicholas has discovered is that Bernard Phillips seems to be the product of a virgin birth. Right. And that's also a very interesting scene that we're going to play now because the doctor says... I've delivered 9,000 babies in my career. I truly could not tell whether that child was a male or female. It was as if, as if the sexual gender had not yet been determined. It was as if it were as if it were being developed. <laughs> you chose to call it a male. Well, I suppose I thought it was the best thing to do. I mean, the, the, the woman was not at all upset, you know, when I, when I broke the bad news to her. She didn't even seem surprised. And so, when she referred to the, to the infant as a male, I just, uh, I just went along with it. It's about gendering a baby. What I like about Cohen is that he puts in these subversive moments that are actually very powerful. So we have the moment with the obstetrician who delivered Bernard Phillips. Then you have this moment with the New Jersey cop who met Bernard Phillips' mother in 1951 after she'd just been impregnated by aliens. Um, has an incredibly casual attitude towards women and picking up women on the other side of the road. Now, will you tell me about Mrs. Phillips? Huh? The night that you found her? Oh, hell. If I'd been her husband, I would have beat the tar out of her. She was hysterical. Now, I almost didn't take her into the car. Oh, not that I didn't play around from time to time, but... And she didn't look seductive, you know what I mean? I'm... I figured I was lucky. She didn't cry a rape, right? Yeah. She was raped all right. Uh, I should say that at this point in the film, Bernard Phillips's mother, young mother at the time, is naked. And another scene very reminiscent of film noir. And in fact, the ending, the penultimate scene of this movie, also re really reminds me of Kiss Me Deadly, okay. when um, Bernard Phillips essentially commits suicide by pulling a, pulling a building down upon himself yeah. and then setting fire to it. Yeah. And it absolutely explodes in flame. That's right. Yeah. Like the beach house at the yeah. end of uh, well, Kiss right. Me Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he uses pieces of uh, movies that he likes to yeah. add some kind of stylistic touches yeah. uh, that perhaps people will be able to sort of reference and relate yeah. to and then throw some crazy shit at them <laughs> just, <laughs> just to shake them yeah. out of their torpor. Yeah. I'm so, watching a movie, I know where I am. Oh, yeah. no, hang on a minute. Yeah. He's got a vagina in his side. Exactly, exactly. 
And you've got this strange circle of, of powerful men yeah. who, um, who are, for reasons I still can't understand, are intent on protecting and um, facilitating this sort of uh, alien messiah. I'm convinced that the man who is in touch with us is everything that he claims to be. Yes, he's proven his control over any number of human beings. And he's always careful to inform us of his intentions before each of these atrocities. Why must he precipitate such a bloodbath? I mean, can't he communicate by any other media except violence? Exactly. Why can't he perform miracles, cure a few thousand people? Wouldn't that be more impressive? The only way the Lord has ever successfully disciplined us has been through fear. Cure a man and you impress a few people who already believe anyway. Kill a multitude and you can convince a nation. You ought to know that, Hirsch. It worked with the Egyptians. He killed off all their firstborn, and then they let your people go, didn't they? I wonder if the cost of salvation isn't a bit high. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and uh, and I'm probably going to regret it massively. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm thinking that Bernard Phillips, in his sort of rejection of uh, the recessive gene of humanity, represents uh, contemporary capitalism. And all these cap- captains of industry, even though they don't understand this force that they're dealing with, uh, they they want to promote this force and, and give it their backing. Yeah. While, whilst being controlled by it at the same okay. time, with almost not realising it. It appears that Nicholas himself is half alien. Unlike Phillips, who has embraced his alien half, Nicholas is recessive. Let's talk about genre. Okay. Because one of the things I think you mentioned to me is that... Uh, he is quite fond of the police procedural as a format for his movies, which yeah. comes from his, his TV days. And this is very much in the police procedural style, but sort of crossed over with the sci-fi horror stroke through yeah. that movie. movie. Um, yeah, with, with a sort of yeah, strong religious element. Um, and it's that sort of idea of human mortality um, yeah. versus, um, I don't know, a kind of supernatural immortality in the in the in the kind of um, in the form of a creator I, th- I think this prefigures Blade Runner that's what I'm trying to get to really <laughs> oh my god that's the one film I wouldn't think memories you're talking about memories well just that idea of um, uh, a sort of uh, technology being um, used to create humanity right and okay humanity being a, a, a sort of a much overrated quality, which um, in I think in Blade Runner, the Tyrell Corporation has decided that humans are, are kind of not really fit for purpose. So let's create the replicants who are more human than humans, but yeah. just generally better. But then, obviously, in in both Blade Runner films, you're sympathetic eventually to the replicants. Mm. Now I see where you're coming from because I think in this film, although Bernard Phillips is not sympathetic because he has instructed people to murder he also offers himself up Christ-like you notice that his um, vagina is in the side of his like Christ it's like a wound yeah. in the side of his I hadn't uh, thought chest. about I was confused about the fact that he appeared to have female genitalia in his ribs yeah um but so he's didn't like, seem like the best it's place like to Christ have. getting stabbed in the sure in yeah the side. No, okay I never, I never um, thought about that but and then um, and Peter Nicholas can't handle this first of all 
because he probably rightly sees Bonafides as a bit whatever he is, God, alien, but also a psychopath. But he's also pretty wretched himself by this point, Peter Nicholas. Right. Um, he has just done a Dirty Harry killing in revenge for his a friend, cop friend, who was, who was a, a bit of a dirty cop but got killed by a pimp. So he goes and kills the pimp, seemingly with his mind, and then goes on to meet Bernard Phillips. Uh, Peter Nicholas is recessive. He wants to retain his humanity, but is it that great? Well, the, uh, the idea that Bernard Phillips come up, comes up with is that um, in this kind of alien breeding yeah. experiment that's going on, which yeah. involves uh, Peter Nicholas and, and Bernard Phillips, uh, that um, the recessive gene... Yeah. Um, in in the sort of uh, genetic mix yeah. is humanity, and this that's is something right. that Peter Nicholas has too much of. Whereas Bernard Phillips, yeah. um, that's his dominant gene. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's a, but it's also a case of willpower. But Bernard Phillips has accepted it, uh, whereas Peter Nicholas has not accepted it because he feels a lot of guilt. But that guilt actually makes him rather horrendous and allows him to commit all sorts of atrocities. So. Earlier to this, he has, according to his ex-wife, willed any babies they might have had into non-existence, into miscarriages. Right, his wife's had three miscarriages. Somehow I felt he knew they wouldn't be born. How would he know? The doctor convinced me to have an operation so there wouldn't be any more pregnancies for my own well-being. Father Dowling sanctioned it in the name of a church for health reasons. So, I'm alone. Sometimes I sit here and wonder who did I live with all those years? What kind of a man would hope and believe that his children would be stillborn? Can you tell me? What kind of fear is that? See, I can't work out uh, if there's a kind of Freudian thing going on. Yes, there is, there's definitely a big Freudian... Um, there's a massive Freudian vagina in the room. <laughs> well, because it's, it's not a... dentata, but it's... <laughs> I mean, it's pretty big. Uh, he doesn't want any progeny to be born because he likes things the way they are, right. which is what... He's kind of an eternal bachelor, you know. Yeah, well, he's like... Uh, who's it? Oedipus's real father... Um, King, King the King of Thieves, anyway, um, and he can't stand the idea of being replaced. That his humanity, in some way, whatever that might mean, will be lost. Even in protecting that humanity, he does some awful things. But this, anyway, the scene you're talking about with mm. between uh, the t- detective uh, Nicholas and um, Bernard Phillips, mm. who is this sort of weird uh, alien messiah. Yeah. Um, what what um, after Bernard has explained that uh, Nicholas has his recessive gene, which mm. is humanity, whereas he's uh, blissfully free from the uh, yeah the poor quality gene that is humanity. Well, he's kind of yeah he's sort of uh, evolved, hasn't he? That's his sure. That's his idea. That's why he feels he can also kill people. Um, but what he says to him is, together we could start a new species, and that's mm. when the kind of camera zooms in on. Um, this strange uh, 
uh, female genitalia in his side, yeah, in his rib, which rib also rib. which also represents one of the um, stigmata of the that's birth, right. that's <laughs> right. of Christ. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on in that scene. There's a lot going on in that not, scene. Not all of which I necessarily understand. It's, he, it's kind of like well, somebody's Peter taken Nicholas a Freud a good, bomb and dropped it in the room. But what's I mean, is, is Nicholas saying that the, the vagina is just too alien for him? I think he is. I think he finds it very difficult. He Well, no, what he finds very difficult, and I think actually maybe I'm going to be, I'm going to use, use a huge generalisation here. What men, a lot of men, not all, find difficult is the idea that they will be replaced uh, because uh, they don't live in the body as much as women mm-hmm. in a general sense. Not all women by any means because women have to deal with periods and all this sort of thing and, and men can live in their minds a lot more. I mean, I'm saying this in the most general sense. Obviously, there are huge numbers of exceptions to this rule. And Peter Nicholson likes to live in his mind he likes to think that he's just this average Joe where life and also extraterrestrial life doesn't affect him right and it's just between him and his God and that's it well there's Um, a line that he utters uh, before this scene where he says all my life I felt so close to God and it wasn't him after it what was, does he mean by that? He means that he felt close to Bernard Phillips? Well, he felt close to God, but mm-hmm. it was this some alien intelligence yeah. directing his, his, his thoughts, yeah. his, maybe he, even his actions. You know. So whereas Bernard Phillips approaches it with a kind of, albeit murderous, positivity, <laughs> um, Peter Nicholas approaches it with disgust and self-loathing and loathing for Bernard Phillips. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to this idea of God as an alien. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, Scientology has basically got that covered. As far That's as true. I can tell. That's, yeah. Because I, my my pet theory of the, this second mm. is that um, Detective Lieutenant, oh sorry, Lieutenant Nicholas, yeah. is, he's actually going fully OT. That's what's happening. OT. He's, what's that? That's uh, okay. So that's this idea in in uh, Scientology um, called operating Thetan. Where, okay. the, where the, your inner alien um, comes into being um, and the real you that is within you, which is this alien yeah. being, okay. um, suddenly kind of clicks on. Okay. Um, Nicholas is going fully OT, mm. operating Thetan. Um, you may recall that L. Ron Hubbard, who mm. was the inventor of the Scientology religion, in quotes, um, was in a previous life a, a sci-fi novelist. Mm. Haven't read his books. I don't know whether they're any good or not. Um, terrible, apparently. He uh, he used to refer to himself as the Commodore, um, <laughs> having once what been like? in the U.S. Navy, but apparently was discharged from it for being like un- Lionel, unfit to hold a command. Like Lionel Richie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he was in a, a naval singing group <laughs> <laughs> called. Uh, yeah. Ron Hubbard and the Thetans. Um, yeah, so his his books were crap, apparently. Yeah. Because uh, I think that's a, that's quite an interesting thing. The best route for a failed artist to go down is either into religion or politics or maybe both. Um, got, I think that's true. 
uh, I know when they teach in writing school classes on film writing that you should have a certain thing happen in the first 10 pages and certain things should happen in the next 15 pages and there should be a, and I, I'm afraid that's why so many of the screenplays all seem the same they're all like being carbon copied uh, from the from the form that they've been given and uh, uh, I, I just can't enjoy working that way I like absolute chaos. Even when I'm directing the movies, I try to take uh, uh, everything that's been prepared and change it at the last minute so that it'll be fresh, mainly so I'll be interested in it. You know, my problem is that after writing it, to go in and direct the picture, uh, I've already been there. I've seen the movie in my head already, so now I've got to interest myself. His, as he said before, his, his films are like a series of scenes that are almost disconnected from one another. Mm. And this film in particular, and then um, he just assumes that the viewer will go along with it. There's almost no exposition. The movie is very confusing, and it is all over the place, and you do have to see it more than once. It's not a bad thing to be confused sometimes. I think that's fine. When I saw 2001 Space Odyssey, I was massively confused. Confusion is not necessarily a bad thing it means that if you've got the patience you should see or read the, see the film again or read the book again I have to tell you uh, yeah. I was very confused the first time I watched yeah, this movie I had, yeah I had no idea what was going on the first time but then I f- kind of felt I had to see it again it's almost like exactly. it's almost like God told me to do it well <laughs> yeah 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 that's a nice ending but I'm not going to let you yeah. have that ending <laughs> for listening to episode two of Calling the Night Boys where we've been talking about Larry Cohen's God Told Me To in 1976. In today's podcast you heard audio from two Larry Cohen interviews, one by Stanley Wieta from his Dark Dreamer's Strand and the other from the Film School Archive. Both these interviews have been uploaded by their authors to YouTube. At the start of the podcast, you heard an excerpt from The Chase by James Brown and the JBs from the soundtrack to Cohen's film Black Caesar. Right now, you're listening to Easing In by Edward and Starr from the soundtrack to the Black Caesar sequel, Hell Up in Harlem. You also heard audio from God Told Me To, as well as from the Cohen films Bone, It's Alive, Cue the Winged Serpent, the Stuff and Wicked Stepmother. Please legally stream or buy these films if you want to watch them. Bye. <laughs>